your trusted source for news and analysis about Chicago White Sox prospects and player development, covering the Major League Baseball draft and international market, plus the action in Kannapolis, Winston-Salem, Birmingham, and Charlotte. This is the Future Sox Podcast with your hosts, Mike Rankin and James Fox. Welcome to another episode of the Future Sox Podcast. My name is Mike Rankin. I'll be your host, James Fox, alongside us. We have James today because, uh, well, he's going to tell us everything we need to know about the international signing period. It came and went. White Sox names have been leaked. We see pictures on social media with them and their family, signing contracts, and nobody better to explain how it all went down and what the White Sox have in their new class of players than James Fox at futuresox.com, also SoxMachine.com, as we are broadcasting thanks to the Blue Wire Network, wherever you get your podcasts, thanks to them. Go to SoxMachine.com, become a patron if you're willing and able. We really appreciate that. Today, we're talking about the international signing class to the Chicago White Sox, and also Scott Merkin of MLB.com, beat writer for the White Sox, talked to Noah Schultz and got some quotes from Chris Getz as well. Really interesting material that we want to discuss there. And I have a broad question regarding the Chicago White Sox playoff chances this year and how we feel about the organization's status at this point of their window, rebuild, transition period, all of it. So we'll get into it. First, James, let's start. Busy week for you. You've been all over. You wrote a preview for SoxMachine.com. We discussed it last week. We have news and we have names. Where would you like to start? Um, There's Luis Reyes, Abraham Nunez Jr., Rafael Alvarez and Juan Uribe Jr. I think I'm missing one, but those are some of the names that I see that you've been reporting on. Yeah. So, you know, apparently there's like a D'Angelo Tejada too, but I can't really get much. Like, is it Miguel Tejada's kid? I, I have no idea. It might just be like a, a random Tejada, but um, yeah. So I've heard of six names. I mean, I, I think I reported on like a couple of those last week. A couple of them were already out there. Um, I think from our friend, uh, Francis Romero, he's he's very good at this as well. But yeah, I mean, the, look, the prize of the class for them, Luis Reyes, is super interesting. Like, I really like this signing just because, you know, I think signing pitchers in the international class, it's not something that, like, a lot of the clubs do, right? Like, I feel like they get less in bonus money than outfielders and shortstops. So it's kind of like a market inefficiency, I think, to get pitchers internationally if you feel like you can develop them. And it's it's something that Houston has done a really good job of. That's like their entire rotation is cheaper international signings. But, you know, Reyes gets 700K, which is, which is significant. I mean, and I, I mean, I feel like when he was signed, even like MLB Pipeline had him listed at 5'10", 130, something we've talked about on the podcast before, but he's like 6'3 now, and now they list him at 190. So, I mean, this is a guy that, you know, he's going to be much bigger. He's added strength already, loose arm plus fastball. Uh, Jesse Sanchez says other pitches on the way. Like, it sounds like this guy could have multiple plus pitches. One interesting thing about him is he's pitched a lot like in U.S. competition, even though he's from the Dominican Republic. He came stateside. He pitched for the Miami Miracles. Um, So he's more in step with like a typical like high school pitcher, like in the States, even though I think he's like a full year younger. You know, he's like 17. So he'll be on, you know, just some some top 30 lists, I would imagine, in the future. I don't know if he'll make our first one. Um, I did confirm he will start in the Dominican Summer League. I wasn't sure 
just because like some of the guys with stateside experience come right over. But I mean, he's not going to be able to pitch in Kannapolis anyway. So I guess like sending him to the DSL makes sense. So, you know, I have brief notes on some of the other guys, but just like, what do you think? You, you always are in favor of the White Sox adding young pitching with upside like this. And they've done it. You know, Christian Mayna is one of the top prospects in the system. He signed for 250,000. So, you know, I kind of trust their, their international development for pitching right now. They just don't do it that often. So I think this guy's pretty interesting. Well, when you think about pitching and the way that they scouted in the international market, we talked about this multiple times on the podcast. Typically you're, you're scouting these players when they're underdeveloped and they grow into their frame. And what you said about Reyes going from what, 5'11 to 6'3 and adding weight and looking at his mechanics on video uh, the mechanics will get cleaned up, but if you have a plus pitch and you're only 17 years old and you're growing into your body, there's projection. And I think that's a White Sox. That's what they targeted in this player. And it's not easy to do in the international market considering I, I just the way that they develop, James, is is what I'm curious about. It, it's not the same to me. I mean, these are athletic players, but when you're looking at players who thrive in instruction stateside i don't know what they have at their at their ready you know are they working with advanced tech in the dominican like i can't imagine that there are unless you're attached to an organization that's heavily invested in you at at a very young age i can't imagine that you're going to indoor facilities throwing as hard as you can and getting feedback through data so I think it's a very unique situation when you're scouting players either in Venezuela, Cuba, in the Dominican, and you're really relying on your scout's eye and also the information that you're gathering from those who have watched these players compete. I just think it's a very unique way of scouting. And if Marco Patti, you know, we give credit to Patti again, hits on a player like Luis Reyes and he ends up translating to the big leagues at some point, it's a massive win because it's so different than scouting a pitcher stateside. Do you agree? Yeah, it's much different. And it and it's the the part that you said, right? Like you're often committing with these guys when they're so young. Like you have no idea. Like I even just brought it up, like, right, he was five ten, like one thirty when they saw him. So these scouts are, you know, maybe they think he's gonna be six five and they're gonna fill him out. Well, you know, he's already 6'3", 190. That's the difference between international free agency and like the draft is that they're just like so young and like you never know. And sometimes these big bonus players who the White Sox typically shy away from and I plan on getting into here in a bit, you know, like sometimes you might guarantee $4 million to a guy that you think is, you know, going to sprout up to whatever and then they get too tall or they never fully develop and then you just like wasted money essentially. But you know, if you hit on one of these players, like the rate of investment is is absolutely worth right. it. So that's why you do it because it's just like so cheap. Like this this one's interesting. Like I'm I'm glad that they're they're kind of focusing more on pitching. I mean, it's a little bit different than you know, like a Norhe Vera was way more advanced coming out of Cuba, and he was obviously like 20. So that's typically how the top pitchers are like in these classes, they're usually like a little bit older and pitchers sign like later too, like because of what you've said, like a lot of pitchers are sitting around at like 17, like uncommitted um, because they just sprouted up or whatever. And then they end up taking cheaper deals than some of the position players that were already locked in. So 
if this is indeed like a change in focus, like maybe shy away from power guys that ultimately end up in corners and just spend the money on pitching instead. Like I, I think that would be um, a useful like idea and like a better way of like spreading out resources internationally. So we're looking at Luis Reyes, right? $700,000 commitment is what we're seeing uh, on reports. And Abraham Nunez Jr., shortstop out of the Dominican, $700,000 commitment. Now, I wanted to focus on the top two there because those are the two most expensive signings that the White Sox made in the international class to this point. Was that surprising to you, James? I mean, you mentioned it briefly, and I want to explore that even more. It doesn't look like the White Sox are going to land anyone that's worth over a million dollars or who's going to get over a million dollars. Maybe there was rumblings about a couple of other star players, maybe out of Cuba, that the White Sox were targeting, ultimately didn't land. What is your opinion on the way that they invested their international spending in this class? I mean, it's puzzling. It's always puzzling, like when there's not like a big addition. And I feel like fans, like, you know, you look at the list at MLB Pipeline and you go to Baseball America and you see like even like a team like the Cubs, like three of the top 50 and like the White Sox didn't do that this year. Like Reyes is um, ranked, I think, 41 at Pipeline and he's a pitcher. So look, I, I've i been calling him, he's the top Dominican pitcher in the class, right? And that's optimistic. Others might say he's the 41st player in the class. I don't, I don't really like ranking like these because like nobody has any idea. And like a lot of times they rank them by bonuses. But I will say I was like pleasantly surprised by the other bonuses just because I heard the five names and look, you kind of look at it as like these are really cheap signings. Like where is all their money going? Now they do have money left, but like Abraham Nunez Jr. being a $700,000 signing indicates to me that you know maybe he's a little bit higher upside than I kind of thought. Like even Angelo Hernandez, the catcher from Venezuela, and the catchers always come from Venezuela. There's there's very few Dominican catchers generally. They always come from Venezuela. He's 500,000. Another guy that's super interesting to me is Rafael Alvarez. He's a 17-year-old Cuban outfielder um, that I think officially signed like as of like today, like we're recording Monday. But and then like the Juan Uribe Jr. story, I have no idea if Juan Uribe Jr. like can play or if if he'll even advance like past the Dominican. But like it's still it's Juan Uribe's kid, so it's interesting. And then you know the other signing was D'Angelo Tejada. Like the one thing I'll say, like you know, I have two point four million committed without the Tejada edition official. So that means they have at least 2.5 million left. Something interesting I've mentioned on the podcast and in writing before, you know, the White Sox really tried to get Luis Morales. He, uh, you know, was the top Cuban pitcher. I believe he's 20. He signed with the A's for $3 million. I know that the White Sox offered him two and a half and he went elsewhere. So the fear at this point would be, you know, just that they had that money earmarked for him and now they have nothing to spend it on. So, you know, I guess it'll be interesting to me to see what else the White Sox do. Because I've said this is a finite resource. They have $2.5 million left in this marketplace. They could trade it. Um, I I think we would all prefer they not. Like, I would rather they have agreements in place. Like, even if that's multiple players for, you know, 300 to 700 k Like, a lot of teams like the Indians do that every year. Like, that's not a terrible strategy. Trading it would be. Um, but there are some Cuban players just that that could become free at any point that like could be eligible to sign. And the White Sox, I believe, are one of the only teams with money. So, you know, I'm going to keep everybody 
just up to date with what they're doing, but I would like to hear from the team and what they have to say. And, you know, they, they haven't announced any of these signings. I'm sure Marco Patti will have a conference call and James Fegan will ask most of the questions and kind of get us what we need just in regards to, you know, whether they plan on using the rest of the pool space, what they think about these current guys. So, but yeah, I mean, like past years, Mike, it's just, you know, there, there's a lot of questions about Marco Patti and the strategy and like what the organization is doing and more so not doing in the international side of things. So there's a penalty if you go over the luxury tax over a certain percentage that don't you give up a certain portion of the international pool? Am I right on that? Um, I don't think it's the luxury tax, but it's definitely like teams like the Phillies and Dodgers. Like if you sign a free agent with a qualifying offer attached, that's what you, it was. Yeah. You give up like 500 K and then the rest is like dispersed to the other teams. But I think that's like already been accounted for. So yeah, there's right. a few teams that have a little bit less money to spend than others because of that. But that part doesn't affect the White Sox. But one thing that, that not White Sox related, that's interesting. So I don't know if you saw, like San Diego signed the top guy. He's a catcher, Ethan Salas out of, yes, Venezuela. They gave him $5.6 million, which I think is the biggest bonus under the new system. Their entire pool is like $5.9 million. Mm-hmm. So they spent like all of it on one guy. Now, the White Sox never do that. I mean, had they like, I think everybody would be like, yeah, great. We got a guy that, cause you know, when you get the top, top guys, they usually pan out. I mean, international free agency is definitely a crapshoot. And some of these guys like never get out of a ball. I would say the good majority of them. Right. But those like really top guys, that get $5 million bonuses. Like the Wander Francos of the world usually pan out. Um, so that's interesting. It's just a different, like every team has different strategies and, you know, anybody that's given kids four to five million dollars in the market now eats up like a huge chunk of their pool with that one signing just because of like what the rules are. That's intense. 5.6 year, 5.9. Now, I asked the qualifying offer question, I guess, framed it through the luxury tax because I'm thinking of like all of these ways that the White Sox are looking to avoid getting rid of that international sp- uh, pool space and if they have about 2.4 left and they keep it i know they can maneuver it in the trade market if they want to but if they hold on to it and don't spend then what's the point of having it oh there's not i mean yeah that so that's the worst case scenario the worst case scenario is not spending it like trading it would indicate that like the organization's priorities are not correct and that you could even say that they weren't prepared but at least like they would trade it to somebody else for something, right? Like, so yeah, I mean, worst case would be like, you just like don't sign the money because it's, mm-hmm. you know, like you're, this is the amount you're allowed to spend, like you should spend it. And look, my guess is they'll spend it. We just, we just don't know how yet. I mean, I think the biggest question is like, you have a guy like Marco Patti. I just like, don't know, like the White Sox don't lock up 12 and 13 year olds to deals. Right. They just like, they're not giving a 13 year old $4 million for three years from now. And we've heard it described as like something that Jerry Reinsdorf just like doesn't agree with. But like, you know, like, would Marco Patti be doing that if he were allowed to? Is he allowed to and he's choosing not to do it? Like, we don't really know. But the White Sox definitely lag behind the industry as far as like signing you know, Dominican teenagers for big bonuses, right? Like now you signed a Fernando Tatis and, but that was only 700 K 
So you can find guys that that turn into huge like stu- superstar players for you, but they're just not involved, you know, for those big dollars unless it's like you know, like 20 year old Cubans, essentially, like they've done mm-hmm. that. Right. Gotcha. And that's mm-hmm. usually because their money isn't tied up from years ago when they've promised some teenager. So they're the team that has money, which is why it usually works. So I guess those are just like questions that we're probably never going to get answered. Right. Like does Marco Patti like, like the restrictions that he's under or like, is he not really under any restrictions? And this is kind of the way that he would like to play it. Like, is he allowed to do whatever he wants? I will say like, he's, He's earned the benefit of the doubt in some ways because I look at signings like this and like I wouldn't be surprised if Rafael Alvarez like two years from now is pretty good. I mean, he got he's getting three hundred thousand dollars to sign out of Cuba. So just to run through mm-hmm. like Lenin Sosa, three hundred twenty five thousand. Brian Ramos, three hundred thousand. Jose Rodriguez, fifty thousand dollars. Christian Mena, 250K. Like Chapelli last year, they had money left. They gave him 500K. They seem to be like raving about him. Another guy like that we're talking about this year that other clubs have tried to trade for. Ryan Burroughs out of Panama, $75,000. Wilfred Veras, $200,000. So you could argue that they should sign like a $4 million Dominican teenager because like with the rest of your money, like Marco Patti might be able to do this with it. You know what I mean? So you know, like, I just like, what are they leaving out on the table because of their strategy? It's definitely like a question worth asking and criticizing the organization for, but he's also still finding players somehow. This is like the best that their international operation has been in a while. And it still leaves something to be desired because of the way that they choose to do business. That is very well described, James. Awesome work uh, all year, all throughout our relationship at Future Sox, just on top of it all. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we have some Noah Schultz facts and some tidbits that we'd like to share with you. And also, I have a question to ask James and uh, and you, the listener as well. Thanks so much for listening to the Future Sox podcast. If you're a Patreon member, no commercials for you. When we come back, more White Sox baseball. There's no I in team, but there is one in Indeed. And that's the hiring platform that you need to build yours. When you're hiring, you need Indeed. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills, Indeed's a powerful hiring platform that can help you do it all. One of the things I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because Indeed does the hard work for you. They show you the candidates whose resumes on Indeed fit your description immediately after you post so you can hire faster. Join more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash sports. Offer good for a limited time. Claim your $75 credit now at Indeed.com slash sports. That's Indeed.com slash sports. And support the show by saying that you heard it on this podcast. Indeed.com slash sports. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. James, I can't help it. I'm getting really excited about Noah Schultz. You know why? Because he throws really hard and he's left-handed. Scott Merkin of MLB.com was able to get some quotes that we will share with you on the Future Sox podcast today. As we've been covering this draft pick, we can't get enough of the development, the frame, what we know about Noah Schultz is very little, but we continue to get more and more information as we talk to Bill Mitchell of Baseball America. He raved. We saw some quotes from Chris Getz in the past via James Fegan talking about the way that Noah Schultz threw against the Dodgers and how 
Dodgers teammates were cheering at anybody at the plate whenever they made contact because of how wicked Schultz was as an 18, 19 year old already. So this is a player we're very closely monitoring and Scott Merkin put together some quotes. And here's something, James, that caught my attention. Edward Tiford was working with Noah Schultz and showed him a two seam. And now Noah Schultz, who said that he never threw a two seam, he was predominantly four seam slider change, is now two seam, four seam slider change. And he's throwing his two seam more than he is his four seam. It's a new pitch that he's throwing all of the time that he feels comfortable with. Now, you're talking about a guy who throws 95, 97 already. Add some movement to it. I can't help but get super giddy about this left-handed prospect. Yeah, so what do you think about, like, you know, that mix instead? Like, I think it kind of mentioned in there they didn't love what, like, the the rise or whatever that he was getting on the four-seamer. So maybe, you know, like, could that have to do with the fact that he's, like, six foot nine? Like, I just... You know, like I, I trust the White Sox with pitching development for sure. So, like, it's definitely interesting that they're changing up his pitch mix. And I feel like high school guys like this, especially guys like pitching in the Midwest, like he didn't need to use his pitches that much. I mean, I talked to some some high school guys just at the high school where I coach at that faced him, and they basically said that he was like fastball slider because that's all he had to do essentially. So, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I feel like anybody going out to spring training. Like if you make your way back to the the backfields, like this this is the guy that I would want to see in person because it seems like he would be like funky and stiff, right? But like from everybody we've talked to, like it's not. He looks like a athletic mover with like room to fill out still, but he's like six foot nine already, which is mm-hmm. which is kind of insane. So yes, he's he's definitely one of like the guys that I want to see the most. Like remember, like we we covered him pretty thoroughly and did the draft and did all the stuff after the draft, but he didn't pitch last year for the Sox. Like they basically shut him down. So this season is going to be his first season as a professional and his first at the White Sox. And uh, you know, who knows what he's going to be, but he's definitely exciting and somebody that, you know, I'm sure people are going to like want to see or hear about. Well, to answer your question, I think it's a, a good one with related to the four seam, two seam mix. And one thing about Noah Schultz that I'm curious about is the way he uses his legs and his body versus his arm. If he's allowing the whiplash to come naturally and not forcing it with a lot of stress on the shoulder or the elbow, if he's just allowing his body to carry his fastball, then that is somebody who will have a long professional career. I want to see him in person. But to the fastball question, I wonder if it's a matter of consistency in the zone if you're missing with rise versus missing with arm side run versus maybe a fastball that's intended to stay low in the zone and you're missing up because of the natural movement of the pitch so I just think that a two seam period obviously is harder to hit could be harder to command but with natural run that's a pitch that you want to obviously make as a lefty in Major League Baseball, you're primary because you just let it do the job. Yeah, and then, I mean, do you assume that he's going to need the changeup to combat righties? Like, that's the thing. That's why, like, I kind of want to see him. Like, we just we just don't really know. And, like, we've read scouting reports. And, look, this could be, like, a top-of-the-rotation type of guy, you know, because of the, the variability in the fastballs and then, like, a slider that's plus, right? But... 
you always mm-hmm. hear about this, like, oh, what is he going to do to get righties out? And often that's the change. But I wonder if that's part of the reason for putting the two-seamer in, too. Especially considering we expect him to start. You want to be able to throw a changeup. And I remember Garrett Crochet covering him into uh, his first season. And we saw fastball slider predominantly, but you can get away with that as a lefty out of the pen, but not as a starter. And I think, yeah, you're right. I think in on righties with a changeup works um, as well as combining it with a two seam that runs away. Um, Fastball slider just won't get the job done as a starting pitcher. Uh, Michael Kopech tried to do that and he had varying degrees of success. That's a unique situation. I wonder what Garrett Crochet would have looked like as a starter. I think he would have developed a changeup, in my opinion. We didn't see him throw a lot of changeups in his career with the White Sox. That's a great question and something to monitor for sure, James, is how often is Noah Schultz using his changeup? Because, yeah, you can get guys out with your best pitches, but ultimately you're going to need a third minimum outside of a fastball slider. Yeah, and I think it's like something to monitor, too, where – you know, if he goes to Kannapolis and, you know, we can kind of track like how many changeups he's throwing. Like we saw it with Christian Mena and, you know, not that Christian Mena didn't deserve to move up, but I think we've kind of talked about like, I think they felt obligated to move him up because he's just like carving up hitters with curveballs. And, and I think the organization knew like eventually, like he's not going to be able to do that anymore. So, you know, while we like to look at minor league numbers and we're like, oh, this guy struggled here, like, Sometimes there are organizational plans in place where you're just going out and throwing like a bunch of changeups per start. And like you might get hit because of it with a five ERA. And, mm-hmm. you know, for people like us, like I think we try to add that context. But like sometimes you don't know. Like sometimes you don't know when a Matthew Thompson is focusing on curveballs and gets into trouble and like all of a sudden he's out in an inning and a half. And we feel like that's a bad thing when the organization's like, nope, all according to plan. So, yeah, that it's just fascinating. Like when you draft this many pitchers, there's always stuff like this, and and there's definitely an emphasis on adding pitchers to the organization. We talked about Luis Reyes. Noah Schultz might be the most exciting of all of them. Last thing on this subject, you know, it's so encouraging. One that he was able to take on the two seam so quickly and throw it comfortably, but the fact that his arm slot and combined with his length gets on hitters so quickly. You talk about the value of a arm side run fastball combined with a hard, sharp slider that comes in on right-handers. Um, it's hard for hitters to make a decision at the plate when they're seeing a ball get on you quickly and they have to be ready for what they know could be a slider that just disappears versus a fastball that runs away from them. So like, we're going to take things slow, but when you think about what could be, that's why we're thinking so far ahead with the value of the changeup added to this repertoire. So very exciting things related to Noah Schultz. Credit to Scott Merkin for all the information. Go to MLB.com and search White Sox and check out that article from Scott because uh, he's been on the beat for a long time. and He does really good work. James, as we move on, here's something that came up a couple of days ago that I think we need to shed light on. And the guys at Sox Machine, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson already talked about this is something very valuable that the White Sox are starting to do. And that's committing to the analytics department. And we've talked about it multiple times in various degrees about the way that they're incorporating biomechanics, biomechanical engineers, uh, those that take advantage of the hydrotronic machines and those that measure spin, right? Like all of this data 
is starting to filter into the White Sox across their organization over the last several years. The last couple of days, here's James Fegan of The Athletic reporting that the White Sox have hired former Washington Nationals assistant general manager Sam Mondry Cohen. Uh, and Mondry Cohen, James, was uh, credited mostly for essentially building the Washington Nationals uh, research and development department. And he started in 2009, won a World Series in 2019, and then moved on to the Philadelphia Phillies. But this is now something that we can kind of get giddy about with the White Sox and their assessment of the value in analytics in their department. So any thoughts on this hire? This is something that I just found out about and I'm starting to process it at all. It just all good to me if you're committing in this area. So it's, you know, the types of outside hires that they should be making, right? This is the kind of the stuff that we ask for, like stop with like all the insular hires and bring in smart people from the outside. And it seems like they've began to do some of that. The thing that I found most interesting in the article was just like the mention of Rod Larson, um, who like, look, I knew that Rod Larson existed, but I didn't like know what he was doing. And Apparently, he's been traveling with the team and he's been helping in R&D and doing analytic stuff, right, to help the pitchers like in the on the big league team. Well, it sounds like Mondry Cohen is going to do similar for the hitters. So the White Sox have fully embraced this. And some of it is probably Pedro Grafol kind of like, look, this is what some other orgs are doing. And you brought in, you know, you brought in a hitting coach from Atlanta and you and you brought in, you know, the bench coach um charlie montoyo was in toronto and some of these other like forward thinking orgs so maybe you know the white Sox are starting to get the memo but i just like yeah it's good like he's he's very young he used to be an assistant general manager this isn't that but you know Mm -hmm. this could be like a big part of their hitting development like if you know because it seems to be a big focus i mean they have they have three hitting coaches and a manager that's been a hitting coach in the past, and then you're adding to this side as well. So, yeah, I, th- I think it's it's interesting. I, can't, I mean, you know, I can't say it's bad. Like, I, I like when they add smart people that have worked in other organizations, like, from the outside, just because, like, they don't do it that often. I feel like maybe most organizations, like, this isn't even that big of a story. But when James Fegan writes something like this, it's like, oh, wow, like, the White Sox did something smart because – I guess we just like don't see it that often. I don't know. But maybe that's not maybe that's not fair, but they've been so insular that it's like anytime they do something yeah. like this, it's exciting. It's changed. Really, it's changed over the last three, now going on four years, in my opinion. Um, at least from what I've noticed, is yeah, there is a commitment to getting to that next level and banking on organizational development. We talk about this all the time. And on the surface, you can get frustrated with the way the White Sox spend in free agency and maneuver around their 40-man because there there are issues, absolutely. But when you when you take a step back and look at what they're doing, we discussed at length about the international market and the way Marco Patti has funneled all of this talent to the farm system that's essentially been the strength of the White Sox organization in their farm Uh, over the last several seasons now. And now you look at the development in analytics, the commitment to hiring Pedro Grifol and mixing some of Grifol's staff members and what they've had already. It shows that the White Sox are doing it the way they want to, but also in a way that they feel like across Major League Baseball, there is evidence of success around Major League Baseball when 
those who have committed to organizational development have seen you know fruits of their labor. And when I look at this quote quickly from the article, James, this is what Fegan wrote. Here's the quote, as will also be the case with the White Sox, Mondry Cohen's time with the Nationals was an effort in blending advanced metrics into the process of a franchise that maintains an open reverence for old school baseball concepts. And it culminated in a World Series championship in 2019. And when I listen, and that's the end of the quote, and when I listen to Pedro Grafold talk about his way of incorporating data, analytics, and how he communicates that with his players. And then when you hear players talk about data and advanced analytics, sometimes it can be overwhelming. But when I see that, old school baseball concepts versus what can be done to advance the game and your game specifically, it remains to be seen. But if I'm taking the White Sox for their word, it seems like Grafol and those around him are willing to work with these players individually because they're all unique and the way they consume information is unique. It's the way that they present the information and how they take the information. It's not a matter of like committing to all of the decisions related to best possible outcome in this situation. It's uh, a combination of gut feel. That's what Griffol said himself and advanced analytics. So that's where we're at. And it seems like the White Sox are taking positive steps they just need to figure out how it can translate into wins. And it's on the players. So that's that. Yeah, like it's good. I, I just like don't know how anybody can really think it's bad. Like it doesn't mean that it's necessarily, I guess, going to like work out and like make all these guys like reach their potential as hitters. But like adding more smart people to your organization is just, you know, never a bad thing. James, how do you feel about the White Sox contending for an American League Central this year? I feel pretty good about it, actually. I mean, you know, like I look, I, I thought they had one of the best rosters in the American League coming into the year last year. So I might be like, like maybe the wrong person to ask about this. But yeah, like I think that's definitely the goal. I think maybe the the twins have turned it into more of a three team race with, you know, the the end of the Carlos Correa saga. Um, that we don't have to talk about anymore. But I mean, like he was on their team last year too, and they struggled, but they had a lot of injuries. But, you know, it definitely looks like a, a three-team race at the moment. And yeah, like I think you could pick any of the three teams, but I think the White Sox have as good of a shot um, as any of those teams at winning the American League Central. I'm just worried about the pitching staff, really. I just hope that um, they figure out some backup plans. I don't know if this current staff uh, in the rotation will be able to make it through the end of the year. I do anticipate a bounce back season from Lucas Giolito. And I also think Lance Lynn with a full off season healthy and he gets to spring training without any setbacks. I think he'll be fine too. Michael Kopech is a question mark, um, but that's really the only concern. I, I have a lot of faith in the way that the front office has committed to like what we were talking about, the coaching staff's value and how they can bring the best out of their players. Um, they just need to wake up because this team is too talented to suck as badly as they did last year. And I think it had a lot to do with the clubhouse atmosphere and the willingness from specific individual players to come out and, and compete. And this isn't just one player. It happened throughout the roster and, you know, injuries played a massive toll on the team as well. So hopefully the, the depth is good enough. Uh, because that's the only concern I have right now is starting pitching depth and uh, what they can do to accommodate some of the injuries on their roster. James, good stuff. Good stuff on this episode. Really informative, insightful, kind of optimistic. I mean, we were really gassing up the White Sox a little bit. A little this bit. Yeah, that, that's always <laughs> that's always weird. I think we 
we let the sax machine guys do the the negative stuff and then you know we talk about the good stuff but no not all the time um you know i will say before we end something that i forgot i think i told a couple of people that i was gonna like mention some of these cubans that are on the market and i never got to it but like they're not on the market i, I think like you you have to get clearance like after you know like a lot of guys have defected Right. And I think this is the situation the White Sox are in. We have to keep following this. They have a year to spend this money. Um, but there, you know, like there's like a 16 year old shortstop, Jonathan Valley, V A L L E. It might be Valle. I don't know who had like a showcase. Um, another Alvarez, outfielder Juan Alvarez, is a teenager. And then pitchers Ernest Machado and Earl Rafael Zulueta. Um, and then there's Miguel Flores, too. And then there's a guy that's interesting, Christian Saez, who's like a power hitting, they say corner guy, but he, he's gotten actually compared to Jose Abreu coming out and he's like 15. So who knows? Any of those guys at any point could be like eligible to sign. And then all of a sudden we get an alert from somebody like Francis Romero, like that they're signing with the White Sox. So just like something to keep in mind, um, I will retweet on my account and future socks and whatever, like as this stuff moves throughout, but you know, the white Sox do still have money to spend. There are guys that will be available. I just, you know, don't know when, and I don't know how many of the white Sox might be interested in, but they've seemingly done this every year last year with Lloyd El Chapei. So just keep your eye on that. That's James Fox. You're familiar with the name by now. He's at James Fox 917. Thanks so much for listening to the Future Sox podcast. You can follow me at Rankin906 on Twitter, and we're at Future Sox on Twitter, all one word. I'm uh, also jumping on the Ajuz podcast with Beef Loaf of the 108. So if you're interested in more Mike Rankin stuff, uh, check it out. And it's out. You can um, go on the 108 site, check it out on YouTube. Uh, Beef just launched this podcast and he's a friend of our show. So we really appreciate uh, the invite and I'm excited to talk to him. Hopefully you enjoy the content and thanks so much for being a part of the Future Sox family. We wouldn't be doing this without you. So if you're excited, uh, as excited about the White Sox, like, or hey, if you have a little bit of a negative opinion about the organization, we understand. Hopefully things will turn around with uh, the way that they're committing to the organization with the people inside the building, because that's all we can hope for at this point. For James Fox, my name's Mike Rankin. Thanks so much again for tuning into this episode. We release them every single Tuesday. We'll talk to you all next week.